0: Read those blueprints and boot the boss upstairs, it's time for another flat chat. And the latest issue of GP Racing Magazine channels the work of Banksy on the cover. Is the writing on the wall for Mercedes. You can spray that again. Joining me to discuss this and other matters of moment in the Formula One world are everyone back in Blighty for for the first time in ages. Mark Gallagher, live from Chipping Norton.
2: Chat live with Chipping Norton. Good to be here and uh, looking forward to having our monthly chat. Indeed.
0: And uh, live from the, the the wilds of Peterborough Shire, uh, this newly created part of the Midlands, it's Matt Hugh.
1: Very miserable out the window, so it probably doesn't matter where I am. It all looks equally grey at the minute.
0: The Scots have a word for this condition and it's
2: Drich.
1: Drich. dreich. In Ireland, we would call this a, a soft
2: day.
0: You call this July, don't you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> we, call, we call this peak summer. <laughs> Uh, you got, you're going to be cr- critical of Ireland. I mean, we've had a week and a half of the of the UK media piling disgrace upon my home country because President Biden spent more time there than he did in, in England.
1: <laughs> I enjoyed enormously the fact that the President of Ireland made it zero effort to even unclutter his desk for Biden's arrival. I love that lack of pretense or showmanship. That it was just. Sort of- wall to wall of of ring binders and files I thought that was excellent
2: yeah I, I, I thought the same thing and of course I got a lot of comment on social media from people going that's basically my desk you know <laughs> like, it's kind of <laughs> like, as you say he made absolutely no Effort, and because he is somewhat diminutive in stature, he actually disappeared behind the piles of <laughs> books and files. And so there was just this hand reaching up to shake hands with President Biden. Anyway, it's, all been it's, fun. it's,
0: it's always funny in the um, whenever the Irish rugby team. Uh, plays at home and he he comes and in, he's introduced to the team and <laughs> when he meets the logs <laughs> he's, like, he's like looking up to see king kong at the top of a skyscraper
2: it was an interesting week in irish uh, politics because of the biden um the biden visit but one of the things which i i was reflecting upon was that um you know, for those of you who are listening, who probably don't follow Irish politics and the peace process and everything, we were commemorating twenty-five years of of um, the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process and all of that. Um, one of the things which happened in nineteen ninety-eight, um, aside from Jordan Grand Prix winning its first Grand Prix with the one-two oh, yeah. Spa, is that actually Damon Hill and Eddie Jordan went over to Northern Ireland to visit a young chap who had been appallingly maimed in a in an infamous bombing in Northern Ireland, and specifically both of them asked for no publicity to be carried out. So it was never discussed, and I, I know a lot about what happened because I was involved in organising it, and uh, it was one of those moments when you realise how much sport can impact on people, and... Uh, Uh, that particular family were just so appreciative of Damon Hill and Eddie for taking some time out to fly over and visit their son in hospital at that time. So I was thinking about that last week with the whole Biden visit and all the commemorations that were going on.
0: It's interesting how how valuable small stuff that's not publicised can be.
2: Yeah, well, especially these days when everything gets publicised and everyone's trumpeting how much they... Gave to charity or did for charity or whatever. So when you hear about someone, particularly a celebrity, doing something on the QT, it's actually quite uh, it's 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 unusual. It's quite rare, and uh, I think even more impactful for it.
0: Yes, well, it was. They, they, this this is completely irrelevant to a Formula One podcast, but wasn't it George Michael who was watching Deal or No Deal or something, and um, one of the contestants was was hoping to win because she needed to undergo going to go for IVF or something like that and she was hoping to win the prize pot so she could go away and do that and and George Michael rang up and paid for her to have IVF and it was never it was never publicised it only came out after he uh, died Anyhow to Formula One news has been developing over the weekend over the, the, the thing that we've uh, executed on the, the cover this month um, at the very beginning of this season Toto Wolf said that Mercedes' basic car concept was in effect a dead end and a major rethink was required and our tech columnist Pat Simmons has over 40 years experience experience in formula one he engineered michael schumacher to two world championships so we asked him to explain just what that means what is car concept anyway how do you perform an engineering u-turn and um, uh, pat pat came back with not just a bit of that but also a bit of what it's like to to work for toto wolf who's a hard and demanding taskmaster. and um, well matt q one of the ways you perform an engineering u-turn is
1: you boot the technical director upstairs don't you no, they move upstairs entirely of their own accord. So, uh, listeners... What, oh, they what, they
0: float up on balloons like that old guy's house in the film in up.
1: up. Yeah, so uh, listeners... So this is breaking news as we're recording, but it'll probably be um, it'll probably be sort of well published by the time uh, by the time you listen to it. But we're we're talking as uh, Mike Elliott has moved upstairs; he will now be occupying the role of chief technical officer at Mercedes. While James Allison has reverted back, which I believe is Colin's <laughs> favorite phrase, uh, <laughs> reverted to sort of a more hands-on role. He'll uh, just leading the the design of the, the department of the Formula One team. Alison will still be doing a bit of uh, work with the America's Cup and sailing. You know, each their own. Uh, and um, and we're told this is Mike's. Uh, Elliot has come to a realization that his skills would be better suited upstairs. Where well, and this is entirely his own decision. Any cynics out there? Uh, whether whether you believe it is entirely Mike's Elliot's own decision, that is up. Uh, up to up to us to discuss, I suppose.
0: I don't think so. I think maybe James Allison sort of thought th- th- only three days a week. I'm a bit bored. My garden's looking great. I've repainted the house twenty times. I've dis- I've disassembled and reassembled my Corby trouser press, and now I want to be hands on <laughs> engineering a Formula One car again. Or it could be the the hand of Toto Wolff. Like, I I loved Pat's. Um, you know second paragraph in our in our story this month where he, he said when pat worked for williams he saw more of the carrot than the stick although there were times when the string that the carrot dangled from was visibly shortened which i thought is, is a beautifully funny way of putting it uh, he should have been a journalist not an engineer
2: beautifully crafted piece and i love that line absolutely uh, brilliant as we were we were discussing the um, the line the, the string holding the carrot was so short that the carrot was unattainable. So it's <laughs> kind of <laughs> very interesting. I'm actually, uh, you know, when when the news broke about Mike Elliott, I went back to to look at when he was announced in his position, which was July the first, 2021. So that's less than two years ago that he was announced in his position as uh, as uh, technical director. And what's so interesting is that they've essentially swapped roles. So at that time, they were talking about the fact that, uh, I mean, in this statement at that time, they said that James Allison would be stepping back from day-to-day management of the F1 technical operations, which he's led, and will turn his energy to help the team meet the strategic challenges of the sports next era you know, Mike Elliott was going into that role of of technical director. Well, in swapping them around, clearly that role of chief technical officer is one where you go off and you just do a lot of thinking about the future, possibly including your own future. Um, and, and, And it's no surprise to see James back in, because I think one of the things which I would reflect on is that Mercedes have been very keen, Toto is very keen, James is very keen to bring people on you know they want to give people career development and I mean it's one of the reasons why ultimately they came to the conclusion that James Vales couldn't go any further within the team and so they were if not delighted they were supportive of the fact that he went off to lead Williams. Well the the difficulty with bringing on the pipeline of talent is that it can start to get can start to feel quite crowded at the top and ultimately there was a proven formula with James on board, you know, from when he joined the team from from Ferrari in 2017 that had worked really well. And, you know, it's the whole thing about why change the magic formula when the formula is working so well. I think that in their eagerness to, to bring people on, you wonder if if that led to too much change taking place and obviously every technical director every new appointee they want to make their mark it's human nature people when they come into a role they they want to make their mark but sometimes in making their mark they can upset something that was already working very well under the previous uh, under the previous leadership team so it, i think it's a really significant move um and it's a really significant move what is essentially still very early in the 2023 season. We've only had three Grand Prix and now we're seeing these these changes being made. And to Pat's point, you know, Toto unquestionably is a demanding individual. On the one hand, he's the fir- as Pat says, he's the first to congratulate the team and recognise uh, the contribution that everyone makes when they're being successful. But to flip the flip side of that is if you say you're going to do something, he expects you to do it. A few years ago, he did a, an interview, I think it was uh, it was on YouTube, and it was, I think, sponsored by UBS, one of the team's sponsors, and he was just talking about leadership styles, and he talked about tough love, and he went on to explain what his tough love philosophy was. So it was about a very tough environment where you measure everything, everyone's accountable, you know, there's there's no room to hide. But the the sort of the love side of it is we're not going to ever hang you out to dry. It's a a safe environment. You're not going to lose your job because you make a mistake. That was a quite articulate way of describing how he is. You know, he's going to, if you say you're going to design a competitive car as a team, he expects you to design a competitive car. And if you don't come to him early and say, I think we might have a problem here, if you say, you know, this is a concept which we have total belief in. then it turns out to be a complete turkey well you know he's going to ask a lot of questions and that's precisely what's happened and i think actually he's been incredibly patient because last year was fairly catastrophic and uh and then to come into this season he will be only too aware that it's only two more seasons of the current regulations ahead and if they want to win a grand prix in the current era they need to turn things around pretty damn quickly
0: it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, we we talk of this car as a turkey and yet everything's relative. Its predecessor won a sprint race and a Grand Prix and this car has finished on the podium, most recently in the Australian Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton on the podium. Uh, some people would say, well, you know, it's, it's not that bad, surely. But at the same time, um, we shouldn't really let these outlier results convince us, that a concept that isn't working actually is working. And so towards, without wishing to deal with any spoilers, Pat does meditate upon that and wonders if maybe the result in Brazil last year caused the team to think fallaciously, as it turned out, that there was a bit of uh, development room in the car that has subsequently proved to not exist. And he cites quite an interesting point that when he was at Renault, there was a senior aerodynamicist who'd done some brilliant work and um, but had, had this idea that he spent ages trying to make work that he eventually had to be told to stop working on because it was a dead end. And you have these brilliant people who get fixated on a particular idea to the point where they can't let it go. And it, it's very interesting that it's concept versus execution is, 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 is what Pat of the whole thing you know, is, is the concept right or wrong or is it just the execution of it and sometimes as, as he mentions with with the Cosworth four-wheel drive car sometimes you know the idea might be right but the conditions for it to work don't actually exist yet so it's probably best to set that aside
2: yeah I mean I recall a Jordan us doing um a massive mid-season upgrade I think it was in um, 2021 and uh, 2021 rather 2001 rather 20 years out of date Um, and I mean as a small team we spent uh, a huge amount of money on this effectively B-spec upgrade of the car it worked fabulously in a wind tunnel but it didn't work in a racetrack and we went to Hungary and the the new the new car which would be much, much more competitive we were assured was um, just awful. It was like a second and a half, two seconds off the pace. And, uh, you know, Jarno truly said well, you know, it's absolutely fantastic in a straight line but the moment you turn into a corner there's just no downforce. It just falls away and, you know, is useless as a result. And when I read Pat's article I thought back to that. You know, people as you say, they get fixated. You know, this is this is the direction we're going and this is, this is absolutely it. And it, it almost becomes... There's almost a little bit of cognitive dissonance starts to creep in, that irrespective of everything that's telling you that it's not working, <laughs> they say, no, no, we've got to keep on going. And I, do, I don't think that that was the case with... Well, it wasn't the case with the the W13. I'm quite sure that Mike Elliott and the whole team at Mercedes really genuinely believed that they had had a cracking, innovative concept for the 2022 regulations. But again, the problem that, you know, Pat alludes to in the feature is you never quite know where the competition are at and what they're doing. And that's the nature of our sport. So no matter how clever you might think you are, the reality is there are nine other very clever groups of people all trying desperately to beat you. And when you've got people of the... Caliber of um, uh, Adrian Newey, and as we can now see, you know, Dan Fallows and Eric Landon, as we're going to go on and talk about with Matt's feature. You know, you've got very smart people who are open minded to create new concepts. Um, you can then just suddenly find that your benchmarking was all wrong. What you thought was going to be great turns out to be actually not so great. And just to go back to your point, um, Cotters, the, the reality is that, I mean, only last week somebody was describing to me you know, what a disastrous season Mercedes were having, and I said, have you actually seen how many points they've got? Have you seen how, I mean, re- realistically, if Ferrari managed to continue to be generally a bit unreliable and generally not particularly great at strategy and generally a bit emotional, you know, Mercedes should overtake Aston Martin you would have thought or there's a possibility for them to overtake Aston Martin which means they finish P2 in the Constructors World Championship well if that is a disastrous season I mean most teams in the grid would love a disaster like that so <laughs> it's um, yeah I said, th- but I think again it illustrates the total wolf mindset he is only interested in winning it, to to an extraordinary degree, and I think per, I think perhaps because they had eight years of domination, it becomes even harder to accept the fact that that's now in the past. And he doesn't want that to become in the distant past. He wants to return to those winning ways, if not total domination, he at least wants to see his team winning Grand Prix and challenging for both World Championships.
0: Do we have um, now? a three-tier F1 rather than a two-tier F1 in which your top tier is Red Bull. There's then a second tier which exists between the the front and the midfield. And, and that second tier is very much Mercedes and Ferrari and now Aston Martin.
1: I I think so. Like I did, uh, I wrote a piece for autosport.com with a, a bit of a convoluted metaphor to try and visualise Red Bull's dominance. And if you take away the final safety car red flag Uh, fast in Australia when Verstappen was not pushing particularly hard in the name of preserving his tyres and car reliability. He was 8.5 seconds ahead of the best non-RB19 which is Hamilton and if you add that to their winning margin from Saudi Arabia and Bahrain over Fernando Alonso, the best non-RB19, then their, their total gap was a minute and seven seconds which is more than an entire lap of their home race at the Austrian Grand Prix. So that's that sort of after three races they are they've lapped the entire field, which I know you, you you can have that sort of freak result in certain rain hit races or or whatever, or you know I, I, iconic drives from Senna and and whoever, but it is it is so dominant and and I, I would say that you know at certain points we have seen they have backed off, they have preserved it or or the your safety car for Lance Stroll rolling back into the field or whatever has has disrupted things or. Or if you go very Route One and assume that Max Verstappen in every scenario is a better driver than Sergio Perez, if you're of that that way inclined, that you know, him being eliminated in in early in Saudi Arabia and qualifying by a gearbox, that, that you know, all or if Perez hasn't fluffed his launch in Saudi, all of those, then there might be a lap of Monza, a lap of Monaco ahead, sort of thing. But it is so dominant. I I do think in that three-tier thing, though, that maybe another interesting way to look at it is the bottom tier, because Williams have done so much better than expected. You know, it's all coming from Haas, so Günther Steiner, and Nico Hülkenberg. But they're saying, you know, you don't really have uh, a a midfield and backmarker now. It is it is the good teams, and then just everyone else. And you know, light and agile Alfa Romeo will be good at Monaco, but then um, low drag Williams will be good at Spa, Monza, and uh, there's no set order. Obviously, it's easy to say that pre development war coming in for Baku and all the new parts and a, and a more definitive order might settle in. But yeah, it's, it's uber competitive. It's, it's almost, you know, it's super impressive, the RB19 and Red Bull. But it's, it's almost a shame because the spectacle behind when you are looking at tents of a race pace lap separating Aston, Mercedes and Ferrari, what a mega season would be having without that? But I suppose that's ifs, buts and hypotheticals, isn't it?
0: Yeah. In in MotoGP sort of 20, 25 years ago, you had Mick Doohan winning absolutely everything by a mile and making it look very tedious while this fantastic battle was going on behind him. And it was only when Mick had a a, a massive injury that caused him to be away from the field for a while, um, that you actually got to see the likes of Alex Crivier and people like that actually really duking it out because the unimaginative TV directors of MotoGP at the time would just be following McDewan around while this this marvellous battle was going on behind. Fortunately, things are rather better these days. Shall we move on to Aston Martin because we, we alluded to that earlier and you, know, we, you, you would expect to see people coalescing or there, there'd be a sort of a designs coalescing around the most successful package Mercedes being the outlier where they've obviously come up with their own concept, which doesn't appear to be working. Red, Red Bull obviously has found something that works so naturally people would be inclined to follow those solutions and you know everyone's favorite read to quote Helmut Marko at the beginning of this season was suggesting that the Aston was an out-and-out copy of last year's Red Bull which um, a, a certain chap called Matt Q has disabused our readers of this notion in this month's issue because matt you've actually spoken to people you've looked at the cars and <laughs> exhibit a the aston doesn't actually look like last year's red bulls to the extent that even Helmut marco has quietly withdrawn back to talk about something else
1: yeah so i, I should i suppose i should start with an apology or, or, or admitting uh you know i'm Rather than pretending now to be holier than now and knowing everything, obviously keen readers will know that I did a, a flat chat column a couple of issues ago saying uh, after Alonso's result in Bahrain, that if anyone who doesn't basically coalesce around one design, they're a fool because it's clearly the winning formula. However, digging into the minutiae, it's been been really interesting. And there's a, there's a website called F1 Tempo that uh, drags all the data from every lap of every race and it is it lays it out and basically it will draw you a circuit of it will draw you a lap of the circuit and the green bits will be where aston martin's good the blue bits where red bull's good the red bits where ferrari's good and you can compare it and the aston its performance is coming from a vastly different set of traits than the red bull so it's all about how late alonso in particular at this stage while Straw recovers from injury at least how late he is on the brakes how quick he can Pick up the throttle on the other side of the apex. But he's out of puff and north of 180 miles an hour. Whereas that's where the Red Bulls really come on song in Saudi Arabia. And the point of raising that is that, you know, they, they have they have different characteristics. And the ratio that we've been told or been going off is at 60-40 in this ground effects era. Like 40% of what you can or what you can see, the top surfaces determine 40% of the competitive order. And it's it's the underfloor wizardry of 60%. And every time there's been a car broke down in testing or practice, you, have you seen the, the new spec car body bag? So it's like a fitted sheet for your mattress. And as soon as they get lifted an inch off the out, the mechanics are straight underneath to try and... Because obviously they're trying to disguise the floor and all the turning veins and that's sort all of the exciting bit. And so aston martin and they have previous under racing point for for the rp20 copy i believe it was where they do send a couple of you know better photographers with particularly long lenses to snap the car and and then sort of effectively create their own you you know you can't do that the ground effects area so it was sort of myth busting a little bit of that although it does come with a caveat that dan follows is going well Effectively, I'd be a bit of an idiot not to copy the homework of the best in class. That's a that's a surefire way of jumping up. So he admits, "Oh, no, I learned under Adrian Newey for the better part of a decade. So that has influenced me massively. And we have a similar way of thinking. That's probably why he was hired in the first place, because there was um you know there there was harmony between them. So it's it's only right that he'll carry it over. But yes, I, I wonder if uh I wonder if um particularly in the post Dietrich Massachusetts Era of Red Bull, where it you know there are accusations of it being slightly more corporate. Whether the low uh, the lawyers have been on speed dial to helmet market, say we can't call it a copy, we can't say it. A copy. And then he's he's you know used a classic line. Oh, I like, it has been taken out of context, and we're like, well, no, it hasn't. You said you said one sentence, and this was <laughs> it. And it was a, it was a stick of dynamite you lobbed in there. But uh, but yeah, he has he has turned it down now. But it's not always a true comparison because Red Bull was so far ahead. They had a Saudi. Arabia spec rear wing Aston Martin didn't they have higher drag blah blah. blah. so the rear wings look different but you can see fundamental differences so I think there's a bit of laziness on everybody's part for the direct comparison however what I will say is that Aston Martin the Silverstone squad totally made this rod for their own back by copying the old Mercedes and being found guilty of it and when they you know they got their Red Bull Chief Aerodynamicist in to head up their aero department, scrapped their con- car concept and came out with a new one that at Barcelona last year was very similar to the Red Bull. So you can understand why the the route one lazy assumption that they are direct comparisons has been made. But it's been nice to sort of do a bit of myth busting. So thank you very much for the commission. I hope you'll invite me back. It is interesting,
0: isn't it, that people do draw a straight line between events. And it is very easy to assume that because someone joined a team from another team and they immediately produce a car that uh, looks very much like that other team's car, that there must be a connection. Well, and that that mention,
1: is Arkham's is razor, isn't it? You know, it's, it's a, it's yes. a, there's a reason that, well, it's not an invalid thing to do, but in this, this case, it's maybe the incorrect thing or incorrect.
0: Well, well yes, because, you know, the, there's the question of lead times and, people who actually design F1 cars would say, well, I'm, I'm not sure I could um, churn out if I'd moved teams that I could basically redesign the entire car from scratch and have all these new bits built, including changing the architecture of the cooling system in about a fortnight. You know, in, in some, there was an era where if you threw enough money at a problem, it would go away. You know, there's the, the famous story of Gordon Murray living on amphetamines for a couple of months while he redesigned his entire car at the beginning of 1983. But to quote one of the less successful hits in ABC's canon, that was then, but this is now.
2: So without blowing any uh, smoke in your ears, uh, Matt, I have to say I thought the feature was such an interesting read, and particularly after I'd read the Pat Simmons piece, because they kind of segue from one to the other about car concepts and the complexity of that. And there's no question that it's so easy as you say, college, to draw a straight line between, you know, Dan Fallows joining us and Martin to say, Oh, they've copied the car and that's just not gonna happen. There's too much complexity involved and whatever else you might think. The reality is that Formula One is truly a team effort these days. One person can set the overall sense of direction, but ultimately there's different departments, different functions all playing into creating that that car, delivering that concept. And again, as Pat talks about very eloquently in his piece, <clears throat> there's very often a big difference between concept and execution. And so what we have with Aston Martin is obviously a great concept and an excellent execution. And that shows a far deeper understanding, not of the Red Bull, but of their own car, they've got they've got a car which has been designed from the ground up to operate in a particular way. And Matt, I love the kind of detail that you go into in, expl- in explaining Dan and the former Mercedes aerodynamicist uh, Eric Blander you know, working together to create the side pod concept, the way in which they work to get the rear diffuser working, the um, the fact that they've t- taken a particular direction. Actually, in many many ways playing Red Bull at their own game. But, of course, top line as well. You've got Dan Fallows saying, well, of course I've learned a lot from working with Adrian for 16 years. You know, why wouldn't I have been? And, by the way, I mean, it would be stupid of Dan Fallows to try and forget everything that he's just learned from sitting beside Adrian Yui for a decade and a half. So he's got to apply that knowledge. But actually also, perhaps more importantly, not so much applying a Red Bull design, but applying a Red Bull approach to being open to new ideas, to looking at concepts, to saying, so here's a general direction of travel that we need to go in. So how do we deliver it? And then bringing in all of the the best ideas into doing that. So, and I think also things like, you know, understanding the Mercedes power, understanding the Mercedes powertrain. Um, You know, the the cooling requirements, all of the ancillary requirements of the Mercedes powertrain, which they've obviously worked with and integrated incredibly well into that design. So it's a really interesting piece around the fact that whilst a deeply thought through Twitter spat about, you know, have Red Bull been copied by Arsene Martin, you know, might take up lots of people's lots of people's time the reality is this is far more complex it's not a binary thing there's so much involved in in creating a competitive Formula One car and they've done a fantastic job I think there's also an interesting point in there about what do very smart people do during their gardening leave well Of course, these days, we've got robotic lawnmowers to do the actual gardening. (laughs) Uh, So, so, uh, you know, I think that the likelihood is that while Dan Follow's robot was doing his front garden, he he may well have been sitting in his kitchen sort of drawing out, sketching some ideas, thinking this is how we would approach that. And, of course, that is the thing about gardening leave and about trying to ensure that you're best employees don't go straight into battle against you. You try to create a gap. But you can't stop people from working and you can't stop people from thinking and you can't stop people from planning. In a world where we spend an inordinate amount of time in Formula One and other you know, other industries as well trying to protect our data, the one set of data that you can't do anything about is what's in the brain and what people have learned and what they've seen and how they approach something like designing a car from a philosophical point of view, the the concepts that they've seen work in the past, the things that they haven't seen. Although Dan will have had that long period of gardening even I'm sure he took some very nice holidays and enjoyed some of the break, he'll have been thinking the whole time about what's coming up and, you know, how how can we hit the ground running? And I have to say, I think it's been a marvellous development for Formula One because can you imagine if Aston hadn't made that breakthrough, where we would be? We'd be... Sitting look at, you know, looking at a Mercedes and a Ferrari th- sort of thrashing around with their own problems, you know, fighting over second or third in the championship. And the fact that we've got Fernando Alonso as well, you know, in the mix, it's just, it's been a, it's been possibly, it may well turn out to be the saviour of the story of the 2023 season.
0: Now, this week, we're looking forward to Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan. Not only a country which has hosted the Eurovision finals and won Eurovision, but also this year occupying that prestigious slot where we've had a few weeks off, thanks to China being cancelled. So there may be some technical developments coming to it. Um, Azerbaijan, the country which sadly no longer boasts the world's tallest flagpole. You know, on, on the tip that you can't stop clever people thinking about stuff. The man who built the world's tallest flagpole for them built an even taller one somewhere else. Anyhow, Ivan the Terrible had
1: it the right way around didn't he? Take out their eyes, or or cut off their <laughs> hands. So they can't repeat their work.
0: Yeah, they'll not build a pot at all a flagpole elsewhere.
2: <laughs> that that uh, that doesn't sound like a strategy that Total Wolf should employ for unsuccessful, <laughs> unsuccessful dis- or successful designers.
0: <laughs> no, yes, no, no gardening leaf for you. Uh, can you report yeah. to this office to have your your eyeballs poked? Yeah, I out? think Helmet
2: Marco might well have been standing at the front of the queue at Red Bull to do that when Dan Fallows left. Actually,
0: <laughs> dear. I did another trip to Milton Keynes. Yeah. Oh, yes, I take his eyeballs. <laughs> anyway, yes. Um, so Azerbaijan does have um, something to boast about because it will be introducing yet another tweak to the weekend race format Baku is having a sprint race for the first time, which um, controversial in itself. Uh, the grid for that will be set by a separate qualifying session, which will replace the normal Saturday morning practice. So the grid for the Grand Prix will be determined by the Friday qualifying session. Will we be able to declare it a qualified success? Stefano Domenicali would like to see the end of practice sessions. You know, I know you like to. Get out. You, you don the tabard and go and watch the cars and see who's quick, who's not, who's struggling. Get an impression. Apart from that, practice not hugely valuable to anyone but the teams. Even the spectators maybe find it a bit of a yawn. Race promoters want a bit of action. Um, what do you think about this sort of fatwa that's been declared on practice sessions and yet another tweak to the weekend format?
1: Well I was going to come back at you initially by saying Azerbaijan has many things to boast about including being a being a location in uh, the world is not enough a King's King sort of uh, bad bad evil villain's lair but I've looked nice. and it was just it's name checked as a caption but wasn't actually filmed in Azerbaijan so so maybe uh, maybe the Eurovision is the crowning crown glory
0: <laughs> Wikipedia is very useful for that sort of thing isn't absolutely,
1: it Absolutely uh, absolutely <laughs> but yeah, like like I say, selfishly, FP1's good because it's it's. Uh, I had a I had a our former uh, colleague Matt James referred to uh, the leaders of he he was British Touring Car correspondent and he had what he referred to as uh, what was the I'll, I'll give it a more diplomatic title. It was like the cup of. Nafal, which is basically he used to score points <laughs> on who used to top practice throughout the year and so maybe that gave practice sort of an, a, a competitive element but otherwise like you say it's, it's not too much going on and actually I was, I was canvassing a, opinion down the pub about this because that's all me and my friends do is talk about Formula 1 and uh, I, I was a bit more precious about, about uh, practice you know I think it does serve a purpose and you know if you want a, a proper title fight and stuff you don't want to turn up with cars coming out of the box with awful setups at suddenly Max Verstappen's eighth. I mean, it's probably not as extreme as that and that it does have a place, but but no one else supping their lager at the time sort of sided with that. They're, like, they're happy to see practice get rid of. And actually the sprint race weekend is you have the most egregious of all the practice sessions, which is that Saturday morning FP2. So you've had FP1, you then go into the sprint race qualifying shootout after which the cars are in Park Fermi. So it is literally, you know, Cars driving around in circles. You're getting a, a bit of data, but even then, you can't do a lot with it. So that is a pointless session. No one, will, no one, all will, will miss that. And you, you obviously get the the. It's F1 drivers that have been leading this idea as well with championship bosses because they're saying, you know, after lap five of a sprint race, we're not doing anything. All we're focused about is preserving our our grid slot for tomorrow's full points-paying uh, Grand Prix. So we're not going to go for this risky late overtakes so they've they've led this and that's saturday sprints stand standalone which is which is good but it's sort of that you know that it's that more is more thing isn't it where you know we've got the netflix bubble the the drive to survive wave of popularity everyone's trying to double down on that and you know red bull uh uh, uh got a perfect record so we need somewhere else to go to the spectacles but it's now like if you have 23 races a year and there's talk that to Menacala and Co are quite happy to blow the Concord Agreement away and go to 24, 25. Then do you need all those extra competitive elements inside an F one weekend? Like part, yes, it is good for the spectacle and and all of that. Uh, but it is it is a lot? Is it like drivers? And you shouldn't feel sorry for drivers, particularly the Dutch double world champions on thirty million dollars a year when they're complaining they have too much work <laughs> to do. But it is sort of that. Um, Sort of almost like overconsumption, isn't it? Too too much of a good thing. But uh, to, to tie up to the original question, I don't think anyone's that precious about practice, are they? Maybe maybe a couple of engineers who want to, well, they want to, particularly in Baku, they want to validate their new front wing in an uncompetitive session before someone smears it into the barrier through the castle or something like that. <laughs> but otherwise, otherwise I suppose is of limited value and we can look at autosport.com when we're running our live blog or practice reports and Sky will tell you the same, that, that the interest in terms of viewers, people tuning in live is, or, or even on YouTube that the clipped highlights that F1 put out on their YouTube channel, the interest just isn't, is is there, but it's just, it's minuscule compared to an extra competitive session. So you know, commercial partners and sponsors—they want more, and they have—they write the big check. So, while F1's doubling down on its absolute, you know, booming audience, that's that's the way to go. That's you—you know—you're dictated by the market.
2: So, when we're having a debate like this, this is when I definitely start to feel my age because I—I I come from a generation which believed that one of the purposes of practice was to give drivers the opportunity to to drive the cars more, to learn to learn more about the cars on the track. And that became even more of the focus when uh, testing got stopped. You know, we don't have any in-season testing effectively anymore, whereas, you know, drivers, including Lewis Hamilton, you know, were able to do thousands and thousands of kilometres of testing. Um, it's something that I, Mika Hakkinen has talked to me about a few times on different podcasts we've done together, that, you know, he says when people compare eras, you know, people say compare today with when he was you know, at the forefront of Formula 1 with Michael Schubacher back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, he said, you know, we, we had unlimited testing. We were out testing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday between Grand Prix and developing things. And he said, by the way, also as a driver and driving the car a lot. And Mika has also drawn a line between that and safety because he said, you know, when young drivers come into Formula 1, they need mileage. They need more time behind the wheel. And while a Lewis Hamilton or a, a Fernando Alonso might might be slightly jaded by yet another boring practice session. You know, for a, a driver like Logan Sargent, for example, newly t- into Formula One, every lap, every session is an opportunity to improve. And there is a safety element to that because it means that they don't go in completely raw to a sprint race on a Saturday or a, or a Grand Prix on the Sunday. And so I, I do kind of... And I say this as someone who's spent my you know entire professional career in Formula One, working on the commercial side of the sport. I understand what Stefano and the team at F One are trying to do. They're trying to create an all round entertainment spectacle for the weekend and draw audiences on Fridays, Saturdays. Saturdays, you know, being a, an obvious opportunity to increase interest even more beyond just. What qualifying was so the Saturday Sunday audiences you know if they could bring the Saturday up to be closer to the Sunday I mean what a fantastic uh, opportunity that is but I do fear that there is there are there are problems that come with moving towards not eliminating practice because Stefano has cor- he hasn't corrected himself Stefano has said that he is he has never said he doesn't want any practice what he has said is that he wants to. You know reduced practice he doesn't think there should be as much practice and Matt your point about some of the pointless practice sessions is, is very well made so I think I think that's absolutely the case I think also of course um, there's an eye on the long term as we go to 24 Grand prix 25 Grand prix Stefano talking about the fact that there could be 30 Grand prix you know the, the the shift away from a four-day to a three-day to a potentially focused on two-day weekend you know you can just see the direction of travel that's that's happening on that. Final thing I'll say is I've I've clearly gotten way ahead of myself because we're, you know, we're talking about the sprint race in Baku. The column that I've written for the next edition is actually all about um, the fact that our sport continues to to change formats and to look at new changes and. And when you think about new sporting rules, new technical rules, new financial rules, new formats, new changes, new 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 ideas being bandied around all the time, I mean, my goodness, you know, the sport seems to be constantly in 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 change. And is it is it change because we need to have change, or is it change for change's sake? And are we going to reach a point in the relatively near future where we have stability, where someone says this is the way it's going to be? Because actually it becomes increasingly difficult, particularly for new fans and for media who are picked up on Formula One to follow a sport that's constantly changing. And I think there is a reason why Bernie decided to have all Formula One races on a Sunday afternoon at two o'clock. It was to make it easy for everyone to lock in to that moment in time. I'm still incredulous about the fact that the Las Vegas Grand Prix starts at 10 p.m., you know and runs to midnight and in, in Melbourne I uh, again for a forthcoming feature I was talking to the Haas team manager Peter Krolla, and I was talking to him about how long it takes a team to break down a garage after a race and he said well you know it's a seven hour job and he said obviously in Vegas you know, we're going to be finishing the race at midnight and he said there's a whole bunch of complexity around that now obviously the fact is that it's Saturday night so they have I think potentially some of the Sunday as well but Las Vegas starts a triple header. You know, it's the start of a triple header. They've got to get to Mexico. They've got to get to Sao Paulo. So he's a huge amount of time pressure already on the team. So I think, uh, going back to the the key point about what's happening in Baku, again, when I heard about it, I thought actually very similar to what Christian Horner came out with, which was that, you know, you're just asking for, a, asking for trouble because it's a racetrack which can... We have seen in the past can lead to inordinate levels of damage um it's extremely unforgiving when you have an accident it tends to be quite a big one um and it's all very well the driver's saying well you know the sprint race in this previous format was a bit boring if they all start absolutely going for it on Saturday afternoon there's going to be potential for carnage that gives the team teams a lot more work to do and it does rather fly in the face of of the budget cap and you know while there is an allowance for the sprint race financially within the budget cap uh, it, it's not enough for a really sizable accident you know re- you have a big one it, it's going to be it's going to be painful so that will be interesting because i'm quite sure that the the teams will be saying to the drivers look yes this is an opportunity and you know go out there and give the best of yourself but just bear in mind the grand prix is on sunday breaking maneuver that you decide to go for, that round the outside opportunity you go for, you know, you really got to think about whether that's going to be on or not, because uh, the potential penalty for, for you and for us on Sunday could be sizable.
1: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. I don't want to give too much away to uh, to listeners about the next issue of GP Racing Magazine, but it does, you know, do, do, to be the voice of doom and gloom, take it to an inevitable conclusion, whereas, as Mark says, you want the safe pair of hands, so you get the experienced Nico Hülkenberg that will keep it out the wall rather than risk, you know, Mick Schumacher having another couple of Uh, seven figure crashes because he doesn't have the experience and he then loses that practice session and then if the experiment turns out to be a hit and we go from six sprint races to 10 to 12 whatever then there is zero chance that the little rule that says you have to run rookies three times a season stays in the regulations and then you go to Vegas which is a massive commercial driver and it is just Formula 1 there's no support races or whatever but when there are support races they have to run to Abu Dhabi which means by the time the F2 champions crowned the the F one silly season's long over. So I know it's, it's a slight tangential point, but it does sort of serve to undermine perhaps younger drivers, less experienced ones, when you can look at an older person in their advancing years and if they still do a handy job but minimize a the risk, then then the shoe them in and, and never mind your F2 runner up mm. getting a getting an FP one drive and doing a Nick De Vries and winning in Mon- or getting seventh place in Monza. I don't know.
0: It's interesting you should mention um Nico Hulkenberg, because the very first Grand Prix in Azerbaijan, if you recall, was anything but a a thrashing uh, crash fest. Everyone was very conservative, and and that is because um, the drivers, uh, the F1 drivers, were watching the carnage that ensued in what was then GP2 which had a number of um, safety car periods followed by ridiculous restarts followed immediately by safety car periods. And I was actually talking, trying to speak to Nico Hulkenberg in one of the many badly scheduled driver press conferences of the weekend that took place while there was a race on with a monitor in their eyeline. So instead of talking to you, they were drifting off and uh, watching what was on the screen. And, and he, he, he watched one of those shunts on the restarts. And I can't repeat what he said um, because it would cause us to probably be blacklisted by Apple, but it, it, the, the word rhymed with duck's wake, and you can see why uh, the the F1 drivers decided they are going to be conservative that weekend. So, you know, there might be an outbreak of conservatism for the sprint race, or they might just all have uh, what the Italians would call arraschide blood to the head.
2: Yeah, well, I think so long as you've got Lance Stroll trying to keep pace with Fernando Alonso, there's likely to be a massive shunt sooner or later. <laughs> um Sorry, sorry, Lance, if you're listening. Right, well, he, did, well, he
1: did. To be fair to to, to Mark's comment, I think after <laughs> let yeah, me get this right. Well, there,
2: there's three
1: practice. <laughs> there are three practice sessions. A qualified, but anyway, in qualifying last year, I think he was in two sessions and he crashed three times. So that's was quite a good quite a good return rate for, for Azerbaijan so Yabu and Sucks
0: says the the, <laughs> the Land Stroll, the fan, Stroll club.
1: fan club yeah is, is that
0: do we have any members of the Land Stroll fan club in our listenership um, if uh, you would like to make yourself known uh, then please email matt.q at <laughs> and let's hear what you think I think
2: I, I think I met both of them at the Montreal Grand Prix <laughs> we got stuck in an elevator momentarily so. well, Oh dear, oh dear. Thomas, you have yeah. an
1: Aston Martin cap behind you? Is that is that Vettel? Is that Alonso? Is that is that Lance Stroll? Oh yeah, you're 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 looking
0: at what christian horner uh, during a zoom interview rather snottily described as my partisan bookshelf um,
2: <laughs> i'm sure he's really concerned about your support for valtteri Mercedes. <laughs> uh,
0: so this it, it's actually both so wow. it, it is sebastian vettel and lance stroll have um I, i'm not sure who's actually what i should probably keep this out of the sunlight because the the sharpie mark is fading but so. it
1: It won't perform as well on eBay then.
0: As is well known, I'm banned from eBay. I tried to sell some of my own books. (laughs) (laughs) And they cancelled the sale and threw me off and told me I was a security risk. Did you have to poke them instead? (laughs) Well, the local Oxfam is now saying, another one of these? What? Uh, I'll I'll be keeping the um, Aston Martin uh, baseball cap because it actually covers up a rather annoying blue stain on that shelf caused by a uh, expired ink cartridge that I'd put in one of those Macmillan charity envelopes the the residue leaking through the bottom so there's a a, a cyan splodge on that shelf
2: so your summary is that the benefit of having a signed Aston Morton cap is that it covers up the stains on your (laughs) your bookshelf (laughs) that's terrible that's terrible
0: Oh dear, I oh do. I think. Well, it's it's as, as we come up to the hour mark in this, this podcast, it's it's time for us to leave it there with our listeners visualizing uh, peculiarly coloured stains uh, on, on my which <laughs>
2: obscured. You, you really need to wrap this one up, Coders. Really, really do.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to another dose of absolute arrant madness. Um, You can find out uh, the latest subscription offers for GP Racing magazine by going to gpracing.com. If you want to find a local stockist, go to seymour.co.uk. That's Seymour, as in the lady who played solitaire in... Yes, live and let die. Uh, make sure you don't turn any unfortunate cards up, should you be playing the <laughs> Uh Thank you to my guest. Thank you, Matt Q. You can go, go and wait for the Eon Man to arrive.
1: Absolutely. I've, uh, they're, they're due between 12 and 4, so I expect to hear from them sometime about half past six, saying uh, they can't make it.
0: Well, yeah, mind you, the, um, the open-reach people who've uh, been serially visiting my house to cure the stuttering broadband uh, turn up reliably at about quarter past eight in the morning before disappearing off having not solved it until the last one because um, we've actually managed to record this podcast without me disappearing so well,
1: that's I, pretty good not not to uh call out the entire sort of uh, industry but we the last person came from eon had wanted to check all of our systems and they did that they did a fantastic job and then i noticed about four o'clock and this is during the winter it was roasting i was sweating and they'd buggered with the thermostat and left it on like 30 just You're spewing away my salary on roasting the house. I'm I'm I'm, I'm, down to sixteen immediately. (laughs) Thank you, Mark Gallagher, for
0: your wisdom and sagacious input.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's been great, great, and nice to hear you mention Jane Seymour because I once. Slept beside her on a business class flight from Los Angeles back to London. She's a little bit older than she was back when she did Live and Let Die. But uh, anyway, I'll take it. That was my kind of... That's the closest I'll ever get to Jane Seymour, or I suspect any Hollywood actress. So there we go. Anyway, very enjoyable to have a chat with you again, these... uh, yeah, this month.
0: So there you go. I sat in front of Blur's Damon Albarn once. That's not on as that- gu-
2: that's not as good as sleeping beside Jane Seymour. I'm <laughs> no, sorry. No, <but> just- <laughs> no.
0: And, and also, I, I couldn't go to sleep because the um it was it was Alitalia, so naturally the reclining mechanism was was <coughs> broken. So if I leaned back, I'd have ended up <laughs> in Damon Albarn's lap. So um, there you go. Bolt upright for the entire flight. Um, we have now stretched our listeners patience beyond breaking point. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back for another flat chat this time next month. Sports
1: Social Podcast Network.
2: Step into the world of power, loyalty,